Welcome to the Faith Tested by Fire podcast. This is Jim, and today I want to talk about what I've learned about financial tests and trials. Today I want to talk about financial tests and trials. Economists can talk about how many jobs are created from one quarter to the next, but what you read in an article or what you hear on television can seem like it's a world away compared to where you live. You buy groceries from week to week, put gas in the car, pay insurance premiums, bills, and so forth. You know what your own economy is like from first-hand experience. Isn't that true? You also know what it's like for friends and family members. The phrase, things are tough all over, seems to apply to the time we're living in. Personally, I know what it's like to use things sparingly. I've experienced what it's like to live from month to month, wondering what tomorrow might bring. I also know what it's like to look to God from the heart with everything I have. It says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, I'm reading from the American King James Version, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Scriptures like this give you hope. But it also says in Proverbs thirteen twelve, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is as a tree of life. Sometimes it looks like things are getting better, but sometimes bad things happen. Something unforeseen takes place. It's something you weren't prepared for, and when it happens, it basically takes the wind out of your sails. That's what happens when hope is deferred. It makes the heart sick. Let me share with you a few things to help you if you're in this place in your life. First of all, settle it in your heart that God isn't your problem. What I mean by that is, God isn't the author, so to speak, of financial suffering. He is the author of salvation. And there's a big difference, and one doesn't overlap the other. They are as different as light is from darkness and night is from day. I've come to understand in my personal experience, not just theology, that God does work all things together for good, but that doesn't mean that God causes evil so that good could come from it. If that were so, Romans chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 never would have been written. It says there, For if the truth of God has abounded through my lie to his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner, and not rather, as we have been slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So that may seem a little bit foreign to you. The American King James Version is very, very close to the King James Version with just a few Uh, differences in words. Let me read that again. For if the truth of God has abounded more, or has abounded through my lie to his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? So that's like saying that um, some people believe that both light and darkness need one another, that there is a balance, and that balance has to be maintained. In other words, there can't just be all good, there has to be evil, because if there wasn't evil, then we wouldn't appreciate good. And that type of thinking 
seeps into people's mindsets. And then verse 8, it says, And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say. In other words, people are saying that this is what they're preaching. Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. In other words, the damnation isn't, is to the people who are saying that they were preaching this message. Let us do evil that good may come. So if we do evil and that evil causes good to come, as though there's some kind of universal balance, like I was saying, that's needed, why would we still be judged for sinning? Why would we still be judged as sinners, in other words? So if you continue along with that same line of thought, why would the devil and fallen angels be judged if doing evil could cause good to come? So some people believe that evil is occurring in their life so they can learn something good from it. Now, of course, if you burn your hand on a stove, you learn something good. Not to put your hand on the stove, but you don't have to actually have the, you don't have to experience the evil to know that it's evil. You don't have to experience um, theft or stealing something and going to jail to learn something good, meaning that it's wrong to steal. Or you don't have to have an affair with a married person to learn that it's really wrong, the wrong thing to do. The Bible clearly states what's right and what's wrong. So you don't have to actually experience the wrong to appreciate the good. So the truth is stated very clearly. Jesus did this multiple times, but flat out in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says there, the thief comes not, but for to steal and to kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So Satan is the thief. He's the one that takes away the good things from your life. When I say Satan, I realize there's only one fallen angel named Lucifer, but there are many other evil entities, the Bible shows, and spirits that work beneath his headship or his rule. In the same way, there are many angels that work under the authority of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So it's really important for you to grasp this. I'm talking about if you're in a financial difficulty, we're specifically focusing on that right now. It could be anything, but I'm using this for an example because so many people are being touched by this type of condition right now. It's important for you to grasp the difference between light and darkness, good and evil. Because evil always comes disguised as light. And if you allow evil in thinking that it's light, if you allow destruction coming, not recognizing its source, then you will accept its presence in your life. And as long as you accept the presence of loss or evil or fear, not only will it remain, but it will breed and have children. <laughs> You'll find yourself wondering, is this my fault? Am I the cause of this? If you look at your life, you don't have to look too hard to realize that you are not perfect. We all continue to fall short of perfection. John, the disciple of Jesus, the one that Jesus loved, the one that wrote the Gospel of John, the one that wrote 1 John, said in the 8th verse, if we say we have no sin, we, he included himself in there. He didn't say, if you say you have no sin, talking to unbelievers, he was written, writing this to other believers. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Again, that verse is written by the Apostle John, who was known as the deceit 
the disciple that Jesus loved. So the truth that enables you to see things, enables you to see things as they truly are. You can't look at yourself and deceive yourself and say you have no sin, right? We all have some sin in our lives on this side of eternity. The Bible warns against practicing it, embracing it, reveling in it. And the law which exposes sin, according to the Old Testament, with its commandments, basically can be summed up in love God and love your neighbor. And if you just look at the loving your neighbor concept, none of us loves our neighbor as we love ourselves 100% of the time, do we? So this is really important to understand and to recognize the darkness and evil for what it is. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you. So God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It was never God's will that his people are destroyed. Remember Jesus said, The thief comes not, but for to steal, kill, and destroy, I've come, that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So, If God's will, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. Jesus actually said the words that I'm speaking. I'm not speaking on my own, but the Father gives me what to say. So you can tell that the destroyer of the Old Testament was not God, although some people credit those acts to God. And yeah, we can argue all day long about judgments and... um, what happens when people do evil and you can put yourself in that category. I notice that there's some people that they have a victim mentality. They're no good and they deserve everything they have coming upon them. Well, none of us deserve grace or else it wouldn't be called grace, right? Grace is God's unearned favor. So you have to get that kind of thinking out of your mind completely. Again, we see the picture of destruction taking place against the will of God. People just think that if something happens, God is so big, he can just step right in and change everything. But we can also see from reading event after event as recorded in the Bible, and even things that we see in the world around us, that it's up to every individual to pray. It's up to every individual to believe. It's up to each individual to receive. And if they have a lack of knowledge... Destruction can happen as a result of it. That was so in the past, it was so in Jesus' time, and it's so today. To be destroyed, defeated, cast down, and so forth, these things happen because there's a thief in the earth. Jesus revealed God the Father to his disciples. But they had the same problems, just like we do today, receiving that truth in our hearts. So when Jesus said, the thief comes not before to steal and to kill and destroy, he was revealing the true character and nature of Satan and the beings that serve him. Likewise, when he stated, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, he was revealing the nature of not just himself, but of God his Father and of all the beings that serve him. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in John chapter 14, verse number 9. So on one hand, we have the truth of the Bible, and on the other hand, our personal experiences. In the midst of a financial trial, I've found myself asking questions like, what am I doing wrong? It's natural because you're still a human being and you still live in 
at least partially according to your senses, right? You see things, you hear things, you can't see into the spiritual realm. In order to do that, you have to look at what the Bible says and begin to see things through the eyes of faith or through the eyes of your heart on the inside, not on the outside. You know, you ask the question, what can I change? Or how come God doesn't seem to be helping me? I know it can be really frustrating. I understand the frustration that comes with prolonged experiences in the desert. The Israelites wandered through the desert in the Old Testament for 40 years. That's a lifetime from where I'm sitting. I mean, think about it. If you go into the wilderness like they did and you were 20 years old, you'd be 60 years old when you got out. And that's if you were 20. What if you were already 30 or 40 or you went in, God forbid, at 60? I mean, you died out there. So Hebrews 13.9 says that those people that were in the wilderness entered not into the promised land because of their unbelief, Hebrews 3.19. So in plain English, the answer didn't manifest God's blessings in their personal experience because of their unbelief. Only two people, Joshua and Caleb, entered into the promised land. In other words, they had the attitude of faith, the, the type of heart that said, we can overcome, we can do this, God is with us, God has forgiven us, God is for us, and God's here right now. We can still succeed. They were the only two people that believed that. A lot of preachers might break down the situation and look at it in the terms of faith and unbelief as they understand those particular topics. And I'm not going to pretend that I understand how everything works. That just isn't the case. No one can say that in this world. But I do understand some things that have really helped me in a practical way. For example, it says in Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 24 through 30. No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or else he will hold on to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, take no thought of your life, what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And why take you thought for raiment or clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Why, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So, Theologically, that makes sense, but you really feel the impact of not having things in the world. When you're walking down the road in, some, in, in the heat of the day, so to speak, while somebody else is driven by in a chauffeur-driven limousine, I mean, sometimes you look at yourself and you think, I should be in there, or why can't I be in there? Doesn't God love me enough to put me in a limousine and have somebody driving it? Or maybe I just... I'm not that important to him. I mean, the mind thinks all sorts of crazy things. And you can see why in the context here. Whatever type of wilderness you're in or whatever type of threats seem to be uh, manifesting themselves in your life. Jesus said, take no thought of your life. Well, there's a difference between 
not caring what happens next, or giving it into God's hands knowing that he's going to take care of you. See, it's one thing if you know that, oh, I can see where God can move through this person or that person and have a little bit of hope. But that's putting your hope in man, not God. Because God sees who you really trust and what you really trust in. So you can't serve God and money. Your heart's either going to be in one place or the next. I'd love to tell you that I've never served mammon before, but I'd be lying about it. But what I'm talking about serving, I'm talking about putting effort into and striving to make more and more and more money and telling myself the whole time that, you know, I don't need a mansion or anything like that. I'm just trying to put some money aside to get ahead and and to have some nicer things. I mean, you're a human being, so there's certain things you're going to find attractive. That's just a part of life. But I also know there's a subtle difference between suddenly you're not serving God on the inside, in your heart, your attitude is what I'm talking about. You're not really happy with what you have. All you can see is what you're lacking and a a discontentment like weeds start to grow on the inside. Hebrews 13.5 says, let your conversation or your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So be content with such, if what you have today isn't going to be enough for tomorrow, or if what you're receiving in these specific amounts today isn't going to be enough if you receive that same amount tomorrow. In other words, you're going to need more. You see, you're going to need uh, an increase of some kind in order to handle the demand that's coming tomorrow. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God says, I never will leave you or forsake you. The Holy Spirit will never leave you nor forsake you. God's word will never return void. When you pray according to the scriptures, when you base your prayer on what God's already promised, then just know that you can be content today because not as just tomorrow is in God's hands. It's not just that, but tomorrow's in the hands of God who loves you, knows you, and has already made provision for you. So you can go to sleep at rest tonight knowing that the things that you don't know, he's already provided for. Everything is there for you. You just have to be willing to let go of your anxiousness, let go of all those negative feelings and emotions, and begin to trust and believe God. 1 Timothy 6, chapter, or verses 5 through 10. That's 1 Timothy 6, 5 through 10. It says, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw yourself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So we don't really hear much about contentment today. We just hear about what we can have if we do this and this and this, or what we can have if we buy this product or join that group or go from here to there. It's A lot of today's message is about not being content with what you have. And again, it's not about not wanting more or not wanting something nice or not wanting something better. You're a human being. If you live in a shack, of course, it would be nice to have a, a better house. And when you see it, you can't help but think, I would like to live in something like that. When you look at you have a leaky roof or bad pipes and plumbing or the where you live isn't a good area, however you define that. The idea is contentment means 
that I'm happy with what I have. Do I want more or would I enjoy more? Absolutely. And I've prayed and I've given that to God. So I'm not going to live today or this very moment coveting something else. I'm going to live in contentment instead of coveting the next step up the ladder. Or I'm going to live in contentment resenting the fact that I can only eat hot dogs for dinner when somebody else is eating filet mignon. (laughs) Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men into destruction and perdition. For the love of money. Again, I'm sure you've heard it said before that money isn't evil, but the love of it is, and the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is talking about believers here. It says, for the love of money, which, while some coveted after, have erred from the faith. That means they had the faith at one time, but they erred from it, And they pierce themselves through with many sorrows because they coveted after the bigger, the better, the shinier. There's some people who covet things who are already rich. And then there's people who covet things who are broke. In both cases, it's a state of the person's heart that these scripture verses are focusing on, not the outward things. It's the heart of man that's the root of life. All things spring from the heart. Over time, honestly, I've learned how to simplify my life. I've learned how to be grateful for what I have, even if it's not the shiniest, the biggest, or the best of its kind. Do I still get tempted? Absolutely. But I have to be honest, the temptation, uh, thank God, is nowhere near as strong as it was when I was younger. All the glitters definitely is in gold. In the past, if I had a little money left over, I would look at it and say within myself, well, that could be wiped out in the blink of an eye. And honestly, that kind of thinking makes life miserable. I look at how much money you have and whatever amount that is, anything can be wiped out. Isn't that true? Your security has to be in God if you don't want to live a fearful existence. I've learned that my tomorrows are in God's hands, not mine. I've also learned that you have to look to God first, not to other people. In other words, um, you can't put your faith in anyone or anything on this earth as being your deliverer or your source or your ultimate supply. You just can't do it. God wants you to have a direct relationship with him through Jesus Christ That's the whole gospel message in a nutshell. We can have peace with God and all the benefits that come as a result of that. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35, you can read the story about Jesus stilling the storm. And right before he did, his disciples awoke him and said, Don't you care that we're perishing? Well, maybe you feel like that. You know how the story ends, though, don't you? Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves And the storm was stopped. His response to them was, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? If I was there, maybe I would have answered the question. Maybe I would have said, Well, I thought God wasn't happy with us. That's why we were in the storm. Or maybe we were out of God's will. Or maybe we didn't realize we had the authority to stop 
the storm in your name. I was just waiting for you to do it. I figured you would do it when you were ready for it to stop. The point is, we all think the same things from time to time. We're all tempted to think the same things when bad things happen or when we experience a setback. Uh, sometimes we wonder if, if we deserved what happened or it was our own uh, poor judgment that allowed something to happen. Sometimes we wonder, uh, well, you know, why didn't God do something to help me avoid this situation? And honestly, I mean, we can't answer every question uh, without some uh, blank spots in between because we know in part and we see in part. What we know in full is that, as I said earlier, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, the Bible says. And good is as different or as opposite from evil as night is from day. You know that God isn't your problem. So rather than getting mad because something happened that you didn't want to happen, you have to learn to do the exact same things that Jesus and the earlier disciples did that we see in the Bible. Jesus didn't get up and, and say, I can't believe God allowed this storm to happen. Now there's water all over it. Why did this have to happen? He rebuked the storm and he stopped it. Likewise, he said, I've given you my name, and whatsoever, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. It says in the book of James, however, we should ask in faith, nothing wavering. And that's why faith is a fight. Because when we see things that contradict what the Bible says, the test is to not doubt. The test is to keep on believing. The test is to persevere when it looks like there's no reason to persevere, when it looks like you're defeated. It says in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says that we should lay aside the weights and the sins and things like that that beset us or, or knock us off course and run with patience. The race that's said before us. We each have a race to run, and we run it in the sight of God. In the end, we stand before God. We don't stand before each other. And uh, we answer to God. I mean... It's the gifts and the callings they've been given. We don't give us ourselves our own gifts and callings. They've been given to us by God. Uh, we didn't determine when we were going to be born. We didn't determine what era we would live in. We didn't determine what skill set that we have. And God made you a special way, and he made me a special way, and everybody's a little bit different. And so we have to each look at the road that's set before us as individuals. We can't run somebody else's race. We can't walk in somebody else's shoes. We have a unique path with, a unique, with unique circumstances and in a unique time and place. And that's what we have to work with. It says in uh, Hebrews 12, 3, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you become wearied and faint in your minds. So, you take one day at a time, you're thankful for the things that you have, and you focus on those instead of focusing on what's missing, or what's not working 100%, or any other issue that you might be dealing with. Take, you take what God has given you, and if you have questions, or if you have concerns, or you have things that are really bothering you, instead of you know looking up the latest book, or the latest course, or or going to hear the latest message sometimes, why don't you just 
in, in the stillness of your heart and, and, and find a quiet place somewhere in your home or maybe out in the down the trail in the woods somewhere or by a lake or on the beach or wherever you are. And you take those things to God for yourself. If you're going to get help, the kind of help that you're looking for, maybe God has set up your situation so there is only one direction that you can look in to get what you need. And that direction is up. So this is about building a relationship between you and between your father, God. I, that, that's about the easiest way I can put it. This isn't about religion or learning a new set of disciplines or just getting a bunch of knowledge in your head. This is about a connection in your heart between you and God. And I don't think there's anything more real that you can experience in your lifetime than that. So that's it for now. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information or to join my mailing list, I seldom send out more than one message a month. But uh, if you'd like that, please visit my main website at www.faithtestedbyfire.com. It's www.faithtestedbyfire.com. This is Jim. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you the next time.